I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Welcome to this podcast of The People's Pharmacy. You can find previous podcasts and more information on a range of health topics at peoplespharmacy.com. It's estimated that over 30 million Americans suffer from migraine headaches. What can ease their severe pain? This is The People's Pharmacy with Terry and Joe Graydon. Paula Dumas suffered from migraines for most of her life. Her head pain often disabled her for 25 days out of every month. How did she overcome this devastating condition? Imitrex, or Sumatriptan, revolutionized the treatment of migraine headaches when it was introduced in 1993. But many people can't tolerate triptan medications. There are several new approaches to both prevent and treat serious headaches. We'll hear from an expert about the pros and cons of various new medications. Coming up on The People's Pharmacy, the latest news on the treatment of migraines. In the People's Pharmacy Health Headlines, people around the world are ready to be done with COVID. Unfortunately, the coronavirus doesn't seem to be ready to leave us alone just yet. Many European countries that have dropped isolation and mask mandates are seeing cases rise. Last week, the COVID case count was up 48 percent in both the Netherlands and the U.K., What's more worrisome is that hospitalizations in the U.K. are also rising. In the past, hospitalization rates have lagged case rates by as much as two weeks. Experts believe that the BA2 variant of Omicron is more transmissible and contributing to new cases. Moreover, people have dropped their guard in many places, just as the immunity afforded by their last booster begins to wear off. Cases are not yet climbing steeply in the U.S., but BA2 is gaining ground. It now accounts for about 12% of new COVID cases around the country, which is less than the U.K. or Europe. In those places, it already amounts to more than half of infections. Because Europe often trends a couple of weeks ahead of the U.S., we should be alert for signs that we, too, could face rising infection rates soon. Low COVID cases, hospitalizations, and deaths have all been dropping in the U.S., experts are keeping a close eye on sewage. Wastewater surveillance is one way of tracking asymptomatic COVID cases, and at several sites, the prevalence of the virus in sewage is rising. In fact, CDC data show an increase at about one-third of the sites in its system. Roughly 15% of the sites had a big jump of around 1,000%. There are a lot of gaps in these data, as not all states participate in wastewater surveillance. Nevertheless, public health officials consider these data to be an early warning signal that we could start to see another COVID-19 bump in coming weeks. Do you like to sleep with a nightlight in your bedroom? Many people fall asleep with the TV or a reading light on. Others may have outside lighting that comes in through the windows. Light at night might be harmful for your health, though. That's the conclusion from a new study published in the Proceedings of the National Academy of Sciences. Twenty young, healthy volunteers participated in the study. They were randomized to spend a night with either dim light or a relatively bright room light. Exposure to just one night of room light increased insulin resistance the following day. 
Heart rate was also increased during sleep for those in a lit room. The scientists hypothesized that light activates the sympathetic nervous system, leading to these cardiometabolic changes. Statins are considered the primary pillars for the prevention of heart attacks. But how good are these cholesterol-lowering drugs for preventing heart attacks and deaths? Research published in JAMA Internal Medicine reviewed 21 clinical trials involving over 130,000 participants. Although statins are extremely effective at lowering total and LDL cholesterol, what people really care about is preventing heart attacks or premature death. According to the authors, the absolute risk reductions of treatment with statins in terms of all-cause mortality, myocardial infarction, and stroke are modest. They calculate that 77 participants would need to take a statin for more than four years on average to prevent a single heart attack. The trials did not consistently demonstrate that taking a statin prolongs life, and the investigators urge patients to discuss their own risks with their prescribers. Have you heard that you need to try to take 10,000 steps a day to stay healthy and ward off premature death? Devices like pedometers and accelerometers, such as Fitbits or Apple Watches, make it easy to count your steps. But a research group termed the Steps for Health Collaborative has looked at the research behind that recommendation. They analyzed 15 studies with more than 47,000 participants. Their findings, taking more steps per day, was associated with a progressively lower risk of all-cause mortality up to a level that varied by age. That was six to 8,000 for people over 60 and eight to 10,000 steps for those under 60. And that's the health news from the People's Pharmacy this week. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy. I'm Terry Graydon. And I'm Joe Graydon. Have you ever had a really bad headache? The pain makes it hard to function. People who suffer from migraines have to deal with severe head pain on a regular basis. It's not just headaches, though. Migraines are a neurological condition that often make a person feel nauseated or unable to tolerate light or loud sounds or smells. How has the treatment of migraines changed over the last few years? To find out what it's like to deal with frequent migraines, we turn to Paula Dumas. She is a leading health advocate and educator, producer of the Migraine World Summit, and founder of MigraineAgain.com. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Paula Dumas. Thank you so much. It's my pleasure to be here. Paula, you have an amazing story. You've... Uh, You've had some real trials and tribulations with migraines. Can, can you tell us how all of this started and how you eventually got out of the what must have been the pit of despair? It was a pit of despair, Joe, and um, thank you for asking. Honestly, I think my journey is not that different from what so many people experience, a billion people worldwide. In fact, uh, it started... And my memory, when I was 23, after a nasty bike accident left me with a concussion and brought on what was diagnosed shortly thereafter as migraine. But what I didn't realize was that migraine actually began in childhood. Um, when I was about 11 or 12, I had what 
people call abdominal migraine. Uh, there was no headache, but I was vomiting every single day. Uh, and then I went through a series of mostly um, GI-related symptoms that occurred in my uh, teens and early 20s, which are all classic migraine symptoms that are never really recognized. Uh, it's common in kids where they don't even have a headache, but that's the early presentation of migraine. So uh, in my 20s, the episodic migraine, as we call it, um, started getting worse and worse. And, you know, I was seeing doctors and trying to do everything I could to prevent it, but not getting better. And by my 30s, it had accelerated to what we call chronic migraine, which is more than half the days of the month. And now, you know, not everybody progresses to chronic migraine, but I had a few other risk factors that contribute to that. And I wasn't taking care of my body. I was just expecting it to perform. I was trying to get by with medications. I'd go in to see a doctor and I'd think, you have the cure right back there, right? You've got it. You're going to give it to me. And we never quite got that far. So uh, I was busy uh, juggling life. I had two small children and uh, a very demanding corporate job with a Fortune 500 company. And I, they just kept getting worse and worse. And when I hit uh, perimenopause around 40, you know, life didn't come to a screeching halt, but it really came to a check your priorities moment. I was really just barely getting by, kind of giving my best at work to get through the workday and not getting any better. Paula, can I ask you to help us understand what it felt like? Because I know most of our listeners have had a headache, maybe, you know, once a month, maybe once every three or four months. But a garden variety headache, whatever we mean by that, you know, head pain of some sort or another that usually goes away with aspirin or Tylenol or ibuprofen is very different from what you were experiencing. That's right. Uh, migraine is a genetic neurological disease with a constellation of symptoms, as many as 40 different symptoms that people can experience. For me, it oftentimes starts with what we call the premonitory phase, and I'll start yawning and feeling really exhausted, and maybe I'll start getting sensitive to light and maybe a little bit irritable. And as it progresses, I start to feel pain, uh, like pressure in my head. And then when it isolates to one side of my head, I know that I'm dealing with a migraine and not a garden variety headache. And the earlier that I can treat, the better. Uh, but uh, I start doing things to to shut down and avoid anything that could exacerbate it and make it much worse. But let's just say it progresses. And that then brings on nausea and uh, sensitivity to light, sensitivity to sound, allodynia. Sometimes my scalp will just hurt, like my hair literally hurts without even being touched. My neck is in extraordinary pain. And I... Um, I'm looking for a dark room, a quiet room where I can kind of escape all the stimuli that the world is putting out. The pain gets worse and worse behind, typically behind one eye and down the back of the neck to the point that I just want to gouge my eyeball out of my skull. <laughs> it, is, it is no picnic. And then the vomiting begins uh, and goes on and on. That's probably the worst of it for me. I do not experience an aura, which many people do, but these attacks can last 
for days. It's not a quick experience. And so being able to intercept it at the earliest possible moment and treat it is key for me to stay on track with my life because it has the potential to completely derail all of my plans and put me in a situation where I'm letting someone down and then dealing with the blanket of guilt. Well, I'm sure that you have quite a long tale of woe and intrigue during this entire ordeal. But maybe you can tell us how you finally got a diagnosis that was accurate. Yes, I I did. I was living in Dallas at the time, and I went to see a neurologist, was referred to a neurologist uh, after I started experiencing the head pain post-concussion. Uh, concussions oftentimes lead to a transformation of migraine symptoms. And they diagnosed me with migraine and I began uh, treating it. Actually, I was put on preventives pretty early. Um, that's something that so many people can benefit from that they don't even know about. So instead of extinguishing the fire with uh, you know, a big fire hose, it's about stopping the migraine before it even starts or reducing the frequency and intensity of the attacks that you experience. And so I was fortunate to have been diagnosed finally at 23, but that journey to diagnosis for many people can last a decade because what people don't realize is that most doctors get less training in headache medicine than we spend waiting in their waiting room. And it's just not taught in medical school. And so if you're seeing a general practitioner, they might not recognize the basic signs of migraine. And oftentimes migraine is misdiagnosed as I've met so many people who think that they have sinus headache or think that they have tension headache and they don't, they have migraine and they don't link the other symptoms um, like the cold hands and feet and the sensitivity to light and the nausea and all the things that come on in this firestorm of an attack. They don't link those other symptoms. Now, Paula, how many clinicians did you ultimately see before you found a path out? Oh, boy. I think I, I, have, I haven't actually counted, but my estimation is between 15 to 20. So I was a very tenacious patient. I even went to the Herbal Medicine Center when I was there on business. And I said, what can you do for me? Uh, I would see every kind of doctor. Uh, not just neurologists, but I had uh, dentists and ophthalmologists and uh, chiropractors and all kinds of people who told me that they could help me. Uh, I'm now under the care of a headache specialist, and there aren't enough of them to go around, which is one reason why we created the Migraine World Summit was to allow people to hear from these world-leading experts. Uh, for me, that was transformative, was learning from the experts and then applying what I was learning. That's what got me out of that deep pit of despair. You know, I was at 25 out of 30 days a month and taking all kinds of therapies to prevent it. I had been to the world-leading uh, clinic and I still wasn't getting better. Now, can you tell us, please, Paula, what have you done? What are you doing now to get relief? Sure. One of the things that I learned through the experts who I interviewed on the Migraine World Summit was to treat early. And so when I have an attack, um, and I do still have attacks, far fewer, but I treat it very early with an abortive medication. 
and I do a number of sort of lifestyle uh, things. I I say I actively prevent migraine every single day. Um, I try not to miss a day without some form of exercise. And it can be as simple as taking a 20-minute walk. But that makes a difference for me. I take a few supplements, things like melatonin and magnesium, which both have good evidence for migraine prevention. And I avoid what I know to be some of my triggers. So for me, if I don't get a consistent eight hours of quality sleep, it's not going to be pretty. I'm just begging for an attack. If I push myself too hard, which I have a habit of doing, that's going to elevate my stress level. And if you add a couple of those triggers together (laughs) and you skip some of the preventive things that uh, people can do, um, for me, that's what provokes an attack. Paula, people are going to want to know, what medications are you currently taking that are helping prevent the attack from getting out of control? I take a G-pant when I, at the first sign of an attack. Okay, what in the world is a G-pant? How do you spell it? And what brand drug are you swallowing or injecting? Yes, um, G-pants are a new class of medications that was introduced a couple of years ago. They are fast acting. They are small molecule, which means they have, they're much more precise. They have far fewer side effects than the previous uh, class of treatment like triptans, which have been in use for about 20 years now. And if you're relying upon a medication that is neither of those two, it's worth trying them and see how you respond to them because everybody responds differently, but they're remarkably effective at intercepting and treating an attack at an early stage. And and specifically, which medicine are you taking and what, if any, side effects have you experienced? There are a couple of medications in this class that are available today. One is called Nurtec, ODT. Another one is called Ubrelvi. And uh, they are available through your doctor by prescription. Uh, side effects for me are pretty much none. I don't have the sleepiness that I had when I would take a tryptin, for example, or the sort of heaviness in my chest that I would have with a tryptin. So I'm glad to be relieved of those two things. I can't say actually which of the two I take because I can't endorse any medication because I'm in an editorial role. So. One one question I have, a lot of people take what I would call preventive medicines, and these are the anti-seizure drugs like topiramate or uh, Neurontin gabapentin, and a lot of them complain about the side effects. Um, have you had any experience with these drugs, and do you, do you ever hear from people who have either had great benefit or disappointment? I've personally taken uh, topiramate as well as gabapentin and neurontin and many others, beta blockers, uh, et cetera, that are often prescribed as preventives. And they're first-line preventives because they're less expensive. So if you respond to them, fantastic. But the side effects are what cause many people to stop taking them. In the case of topiramate, which is the most popular um a class of medication that's prescribed for migraine prevention. People complain about uh, forgetfulness. 
uh, sort of losing losing their mind, forgetting their way to get back to something. People uh, think that they're going to get some weight loss because that's often part of the conversation. I personally did not experience that. And I did not experience the uh, forgetfulness either. It just was not effective for me. In terms of gabapentin, uh, neuro- which is a generic Neurontin, I, it, is, it is sort of not a first-line medication. But for me, that was remarkably effective for many, many years and helped me kind of get through the worst of it. Uh, it can cause somnolence or sleepiness if you uh, are on too high of a dose. But I'm on a very low dose uh, and have been able to take that at night, so I don't even notice it. And uh, frankly, it can be really effective at helping you get a good night's sleep, which we know is critical for migraine prevention. So as a first-line therapy that is not sort of the best in class, but definitely an effective treatment worth trying or worth discussing with your doctor. Uh, you know, I, I think it's worth discussing whether it's right for that person. Now, you mentioned cost, and there's no question that generic gabapentin or topiramate are, are really quite affordable. That's dramatically different from these new and exciting migraine advances, they are pricey. Maybe you can give us some idea of how much they might cost for a month and then how a patient might be able to arm wrestle the insurance company into accepting the doctor's prescription and paying for it. That's a great question because we want people to have access to the best treatment that works for them. Uh, we are patient advocates as well um, who are fighting for access to these new class of medications from people can have. Uh, the problem is they're expensive and that cost is not going to come down anytime soon. So what we recommend to people is that, first of all, track, track, track your migraine attacks uh, so that you have evidence. So using an app, something really Really simple like Migraine Buddy or uh, even a pen and paper. You can track the attacks so you have proof of how often you're getting the attacks. Then work with your doctor. And some doctors, like headache specialists, for example, many of them will have people on staff who are able to help really advocate for you with the insurance company to say, look, they failed this treatment. They failed this treatment. Now they need access to this more expensive medication. Because the generics, uh, many of these, like we talked about, like the gabapentin and topiramate generics, they you need to fail those first before you're going to get access to some of the new CGRPs, which are kind of like the, you know, world-class, best-in-class medications. Other therapies like um, onobotulum toxin, also known as Botox for chronic migraine, have pretty good insurance coverage. So if you don't have insurance, uh, you're probably going to be looking at a generic lifestyle supplements. Uh, If you do have good commercial insurance, you need to work uh, with your doctor to try to get approval um, if you're a good candidate for one of these new CGRP medications. Paula, you've gotten involved with the Migraine World Summit. Can you tell us very briefly about that organization and how people can learn more about it? Sure. The Migraine World Summit is an annual event that uh, is launched every March. For about eight days, we bring in-depth interviews with world-leading experts, authors, 
advocates and sometimes celebrities uh, to help people really understand how to better prevent and treat migraine and handle all the psychosocial kind of lifestyle things associated with living with this disease. And it was founded by patients, for patients, and run by a team of patient advocates around the world, really to try to reduce the global burden of this really debilitating disease. So it's free and online starting uh, March 16th, and then it's available on demand year-round, anytime. And this is the seventh annual Migraine World Summit that we're kicking off, and we're really excited to share it with the world. Do you have any advice for others who are listening? I do. There are so many new therapies that are available that if you haven't gone to see a doctor lately, you'll have many great options that doctors can offer you from uh, G-PANTS and CGRPs. And then education. Education is the best prescription. And the Migraine World Summit is just one of many ways you can learn from experts uh, how to prevent and treat attacks more effectively. Paula Dumas, thank you very much for talking with us on the People's Pharmacy today. My pleasure. Thanks for shining a light on migraine. You've been listening to Paula Dumas. She's a leading health advocate and educator, producer of the Migraine World Summit, online at migraineworldsummit.com, and founder of migraineagain.com. Although she's lost a decade worth of days to migraine, she's been able to reduce her frequency from 25 days a month to less than a day a month. Now she's helping others do the same. After the break, we turn to headache specialist Dr. Deborah Friedman to learn more about this neurological condition. Are there different kinds of migraines? What do we know about the underlying mechanism causing migraines? Over the past 10 years, quite a few new medicines have become available. We'll talk about some older drugs as well. One category is triptans. We'll review the benefits and risks of these important treatments. You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. This podcast is made possible in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements. Cocoflavanols are among the most well-studied plant-based nutrients, backed by 20 years of scientific research. Cocovia Cardio Health is available in capsules or powder, providing 500 milligrams of cocoflavanols daily. This supports better blood flow and vascular performance. Cocovia also offers Memory Plus, a supplement with 750 milligrams of cocoflavanols. This product is backed by four different clinical studies demonstrating significant improvement in several aspects of memory. Cocovia flavanols offer you all the benefits of chocolate without the sugar. Get 15% off your order by using the discount code PEOPLES15. That discount code PEOPLES15. More information at cocovia.com. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, 
the maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. Migraines are still somewhat mysterious. We don't know exactly what causes this neurological condition. The triggers vary from one person to another. Perfume could pose a problem for one person, while another reacts to a change in the weather. The first big treatment advance occurred in 1993 when Imitrex was introduced. In the last few years, there have been a number of impressive advances. Some of the new medicines can be used to stop the pain of an acute headache. Others are better suited for prevention. Perhaps you've seen commercials for Emgality, Amavig, or Ajovi. There's even a new pill called Nurtec that can prevent as well as treat migraine headaches. To learn more about these new treatments, we turn to Dr. Deborah Friedman. She's a professor in the Department of Neurology and the Department of Ophthalmology at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. A neuro-ophthalmologist and headache medicine specialist, Dr. Friedman is the founding director of UT Southwestern's Headache and Facial Pain Program and serves as director of the UTSW's Disorders of Intracranial Pressure Program. Welcome to the People's Pharmacy, Dr. Deborah Friedman. Thank you. It is a pleasure to be here. There are so many people that suffer with migraine and I'm just glad to have the opportunity to talk about new treatments and even some old ones today. Well, Dr. Friedman, you've been quoted as saying that the most common neurological disease on the face of the planet and the most debilitating is is migraines. And and I think a lot of people, they don't really appreciate what it's like for someone who has chronic debilitating migraines. Can you give us just some sense of what it's like at your end as a, as a clinician, as a, as a physician? Sure. Well, I stand by my statement. It, it certainly is the most common neurologic disease on the face of the planet. And yearly, the World Health Organization puts it in the top five of the most disabling diseases overall worldwide. It affects probably over 40 million Americans and about a third of them, at least, have what we would consider disabling migraines. So migraine is not just a headache. It actually involves a lot of different parts of the nervous system. And yes, headache is part of it, and the headache is often very severe. Um, But the headache comes with other symptoms, such as sensitivity to light. Uh, Many people cannot tolerate being in the light at all during a migraine. Noise frequently bothers people. They can't tolerate odors during a migraine. Uh, They may have nausea. They may have vomiting. Often people just can't even think straight during a migraine uh, because the pain is so severe. Uh, And it's a major cause of of missed work and missed activities in general life and just general disability. So it's a really important public health problem. Now, Dr. Friedman, when someone comes to you and says, Dr. Friedman, I have these terrible headaches, What do you do to diagnose whether or not that terrible headache is a migraine? There's no particular diagnostic test for migraine, right? There's no blood test. There's no imaging test. So the diagnosis really rests on taking the history from the patient and digging deep into what they experience and how the attacks come on and the whole progression of their symptoms 
um, how long they last, how often they occur, and most importantly, how they affect their lives. Um, statistically, if someone comes to the doctor for a headache disorder that's ongoing, it is overwhelmingly likely that it's migraine. It sounds like doctors have to listen very carefully to their patients to get the story. And then I, I, I also wonder about are all migraines the same or are there all kinds of different migraines? It is true that it takes a lot of question and answer to to get into the uh, get into the weeds and find out what's going on and make a diagnosis. You know, and unfortunately, with healthcare as it is today, many many doctors and other providers don't really have the luxury of that time because their their visits are limited in time. But um, there are different kinds of migraine. So the two major categories are migraine without aura and migraine with aura. Most people have migraine without aura that used to be called common migraine. Um, and about 25% of people have migraine with aura, meaning they get a they get some kind of a warning. They may have a visual disturbance or uh, get dizzy or have trouble speaking or um, have other neurologic symptoms, perhaps numbness, uh, that kind of gives them a heads up that the pain is going to come. And within migraine with aura, within that subcategory, there are other types of migraine that we separate out, um, including migraine that's associated with weakness or migraine that's associated with symptoms that we think of as coming from the back of the brain, such as vertigo or uh, altered level of consciousness or double vision. Uh, there, are, there are quite a few symptoms that go along with that type of migraine. So again, the history is really important. We have heard of something called an abdominal migraine. What would that be? Abdominal migraine usually starts in children, although it can affect adults. And they are unexplained episodes of acute abdominal pain that may occur without a headache. Sometimes there is nausea or vomiting, but pain is the most prominent component of that. And many people will uh, go through extensive evaluations with their doctor or see a gastroenterologist to look for the cause of the pain and nothing's found. Um, and that's because it's caused by migraine and it generally is treated just like migraine headaches are treated. Do we have any idea what causes migraine? It seems that there is a genetic component to migraine there's no specific gene that has been identified. There are probably multiple genes that are involved. But we know that most people with migraine do have a family history of migraine. One of their close relatives probably has migraine. So it seems to be that there's this genetic component. And then there are also environmental influences. So a lot of people with migraine will be able to identify triggers like food triggers or stress or changes in weather. Um, that set off their migraine. But we're learning a lot about, you know, what is the underlying biology of migraine, but we still haven't quite figured out, you know, exactly what it is and whether it's the same for all people. I suspect it's not. Well, that's where I wanted to go next. I, I'm I'm fascinated by the underlying mechanism. And, uh, you know, clearly some of the treatments that we have used in the past have to do with constricting blood vessels, for example, and now we looked at neurotransmitters. So do we have any idea, you know, what is triggering this problem in the brain? Do we have some clues? 
we know a lot about what is going on both in the brain and outside the brain during migraine. And all of the things you mentioned are actually part of migraine. The older theory of migraine was that the aura was caused by constriction of blood vessels and then the headache was caused by dilation of blood vessels. And that really is not the current thinking, but there are changes in blood vessels that occur during a migraine. Probably one of the earliest things that happened is an activity in the brain that's called cortical spreading depression or cortical spreading depolarization. And it starts from the back of the brain and it moves its way forward. And there is this wave where the neurons in the brain just start firing like crazy, and then they kind of calm down. Um, and this happens wave upon wave. And it, it seems to ignite other processes that occur during the migraine process. So one of those things is the release of neurotransmitters like serotonin. Uh, many of the treatments that we use for migraine, they target serotonin, but there are also substances that are released from blood vessels that uh, supply the lining of the brain, which is called the dura. And those substances can be kind of inflammatory or irritating. And they include things like CGRP, calcitonin gene-related peptide, which many of our newer treatments target, neurokinin A, substance P, P stands for pain, and other um, inflammatory chemicals that seem to sort of rev up the whole migraine as it's working through its uh, its natural course. And all of those chemicals, they, they talk to other nerves, they talk to blood vessels. There are messages that are sent from the outside, from the trigeminal nerve outside the brain into the brain. And those, uh, those signals end up uh, in what's called the trigeminal nucleus, which is a, a great big kind of a relay station and transmitted to various parts of the brain that control nausea and vomiting and our perception of pain and the emotional reaction to pain. So it's a huge network that involves pretty much all of the brain as well as areas outside the brain and different uh, chemicals, if you will, that all have this interplay, this complex interplay to create the whole process. Well, you know, it has always fascinated me that a neurosurgeon can actually go into the brain and while the patient is wide awake, mess around in there, cut things and, and manipulate things, and the patient doesn't feel anything. And you go, well, wait a minute. How can we have these unbearable migraines but if you actually do neurosurgery, you can do it without anesthesia. That's totally true. Um, although it hurts when you go through the skull and the bone, just to, for the record. The, the brain itself does not feel pain. But the blood vessels, especially the veins, feel pain. And the nerves feel pain. And that lining of the brain, the dura, that transmits pain as well. So anything that affects those structures... Um, can lead to pain. Well, let's talk about treatment because I think that's what our, our listeners are most interested in. When I was in graduate school, I, I hate to say it, it, it you know, <laughs> like you 40, 50 years ago, uh, what we learned about was ergotamine and, you know, this fungus that caused, you know, St. Vitus dance because people were 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 so disoriented because of the, the grain that had gone bad because of the fungus. But then along came some treatments like 
ergotamine, and now there's a brand new one. I can't believe it. You know, I don't even know how to pronounce it. Trudhesa, T-R-U-D-H-E-S-A, Trudhesa. And, and it's based on ergotamine. It's been around for decades. That's correct. We have used ergotamine for a very long time, and it has been an effective drug for a very long time. The older preparations that some people like us, the dinosaurs, may have been familiar with uh, were ergotamine tartrate, uh, which was cafergot back in the day. Mm-hmm. Um, or uh, uh, Y-grain, I think, was also uh, an ergotamine product. But some of the newer ones are, use a derivative of ergotamine called dihydroergotamine. It was actually formulated in the 1940s, so it's an old drug. Um, it's been around for a long time. And until recently, it could only be administered by injection. Um, there was a nasal spray that came out about 15 years ago, and the nasal spray is, is a very good compound. The downside of it was it didn't really get to the back of the nasal cavity very well. And that's where drugs are absorbed because that's where the blood vessels are. So Trudessa took the same product um, that was used in Migranol, which is DHE nasal spray, and they basically changed the delivery system um, so that there is now a plume of liquid DHE that gets sent to the back of the nose. And it actually reaches blood levels that are similar to what we get when we give it intravenously, but it's better tolerated. And it actually, in clinical trials, worked very well. There's actually another company that is also working on a different uh, and better delivery system of DHE, but it hasn't come out to market yet. But it uh, it remains a, a good drug to use for migraine, even though it's an oldie. And it the advantages are you can use it any time during a migraine. It tends to have a pretty long uh, duration of its effect. And uh, it's a, a good choice because it's not, it's not an oral drug. So it's a good choice for people who wake up with migraine or who have migraine that wake them up from sleep um, or who have migraines that just peak in intensity very rapidly and they need something that works quickly. Now, as I understand it, uh, back in the day, uh, you mentioned Cafergot. That was a drug my mother used for her uh, migraines. They were uh, menstrual migraines, I think, primarily. But there was a limitation on how often you could use that. Is that true for the current day uh, medications as well? And what about triptans? Are there limitations on how often a person could use a triptan? And can you tell us about triptans? Sure. Cafergot is actually still available. Uh, it's not branded as Cafergot anymore. And it is limited because of the uh, the side effects that you mentioned earlier, the ergotism. So there is a limit to how much uh, Cafergot you can take. DHE falls under the same label from the FDA. So even though we frequently do use DHE a little more frequently than we used Cafergot in the past, Officially, it, it still has similar limitations uh, of how many doses you can take and how many times a week you can use it. The The triptans were like our first des- designer drugs in the modern era for migraine treatment, for acute treatment of migraine. Um, the original one was sumatriptan, Imitrex, which came out as an injectable. And now we have them in all different kinds of formulations. There are nasal sprays, injectables, oral tablets, oral disintegrating tablets, uh, they never marketed the suppositories in the U.S., but they're available in other countries. And triptans were designed to target serotonin receptors. Uh, 
it turns out that they also target CGRP receptors. So their their mechanism of action is is probably a little more complex than we initially thought. But they really changed the face of migraine treatment. I, I remember when they came out and people would say that they they basically saved their lives. They changed their lives. And they still remain very good drugs. And they are, uh, of the prescription drugs, probably the most commonly used today. Dr. Friedman, are there any limitations on the use of triptans? Some people have certain medical conditions where triptans cannot be used. Those are generally vascular, such as um, coronary artery disease, Raynaud's phenomenon, peripheral vascular disease, any kind of ischemic disease in the body, you should not be using triptans. Ischemic, ischemic, you mean like reduced blood flow, uh, perhaps clogged coronary arteries or, or vasoconstriction someplace. Absolutely correct. And there is a limitation to how frequently they should be used. So for uh, sumatriptan and some of the shorter acting triptans in particular, risotriptan, we caution people not to use them more than about two or three days out of the week because sometimes they can cause medication overuse headache where an acute medication makes the migraines over time more difficult to treat and they occur more frequently. And this can happen with many different acute medications, not just the triptans, uh, but it's one of the things we pay attention to. You're listening to Dr. Deborah Friedman, professor in the Departments of Neurology and Ophthalmology at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. A neuro-ophthalmologist and headache medicine specialist, Dr. Friedman is the founding director of UT Southwestern's Headache and Facial Pain Program. After the break, learn about a vicious cycle when people overuse migraine medicines that then start to cause headaches. What new medications is Dr. Friedman prescribing? Find out about side effects of preventive drugs like Amovic, Amgality, and Viepti. We'll also talk about devices for neuromodulation. How do doctors and patients evaluate effectiveness, cost, and risk? You're listening to The People's Pharmacy with Joe and Terry Graydon. Welcome back to The People's Pharmacy. I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at cocovia.com. When you're in severe pain, it's tempting to reach for relief to end the misery. The trouble is that overusing migraine medicines can lead to a vicious cycle. How can headache victims thread the needle to keep the cure from contributing to the problem? We're talking today with Dr. Deborah Friedman, professor in the Department of Neurology and the Department of Ophthalmology at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. Dr. Friedman is the founding director of UT Southwestern's Headache and Facial Pain Program. We have heard that uh, some of the -the over-the-counter products take uh, Excedrin migraine as a, for example, aspirin 
caffeine and acetaminophen, if people use them too much, it's possible that they get into that vicious cycle that you're just referring to. That is absolutely true. And the components of Excedrin and those over-the-counter medications that are problematic are the acetaminophen, the Tylenol component, and the caffeine. Caffeine itself can do this. So it's really important when using over-the-counter medications, again, to limit them to no more than a couple times a week. And if your migraines are so bad that you need to use them more often, then you really need to see somebody and get on a preventive medication. We're going to talk about preventive medications in just a moment, but I wanted to ask you about, um, is there anything new uh, that you are prescribing to your patients for migraine headache treatment? There are some new medications for acute treatment. We already mentioned Trudessa, but the other ones uh, target CGRP, that molecule that was previously mentioned that is a driver of the migraine process. And those are Ubrelvi and Nurtec. Um, and there are others in development, that the, but those are the ones that are available now. They are both um, oral agents. I'm curious about side effects with CGRP. I wonder if you could tell us about, you know, what the, some of the common problems are with drugs like Amavig, Emgality, Ajovi, Viepti, and perhaps some of the uh, newer ones that have just come online recently. For the uh, injectables, the most common side effects in the clinical trials were not really flu-like symptoms, but like having a cold, upper respiratory symptoms. I don't know why, but it came out in all the trials. Injection site reactions, which kind of makes sense, and constipation. There's CGRP is all over the body and it's in the gut. So constipation can be a problem. It seems to be more common with Amovig than the other two. Uh, hair loss has been reported. Weight gain has been reported. Uh, I've seen also patients with weight loss. That's unusual. And al allergic reactions. With Viepti, the intravenous one, similar side effects, probably a little more allergic reactions than the other two. And then now we also have Nurtec, which is given not only as an acute treatment, but every other day as prevention, as well as Qlipta, which is the newest one out. Uh, they're given, that's given every day orally. They actually seem to be pretty well tolerated from what I've seen so far. And Nurtec is spelled N-U-R-T-E-C, -E and Ubrelvy is U-B-R-E-L-V-Y. Correct. And what what about something such as Raval, uh, Lasmiditan? It sounds like another triptan. It's fairly new. And what about neuromodulation? What the heck is that? <laughs> Lasmiditan, which I should have mentioned before, is not a triptan. It's a ditan. Okay. It's close to a triptan, but it has significant differences. So the triptans work by activating specific serotonin receptors. They're called the 1D and the 1B receptors. And the 1B receptor, you can think of B for blood vessel, that's the one that causes the problems for people that have vascular disease. Lasmiditan or Raval targets the, the serotonin 1F receptor. So there's no impact uh, on the vascular component. 
And so people who have underlying vascular disease can safely take Rayval, as can other people. The, uh, the thing to worry about or to think about with Rayval, it's a very effective drug, um, but they did driving simulation studies with it on, on healthy controls without migraine and found that they weren't exactly driving in the lines within eight hours of taking the drug. Ooh, that's a problem. Yeah, it is. So you cannot drive within eight hours of taking Rayval. But most people in the throes of a migraine don't drive anyway. And a lot of people will use Rayval for their evening migraines when they're going to go to sleep. And what about neuromodulation? What the heck is it? Neuromodulation is really interesting and exciting, I think. So these are devices that generally deliver, uh, with one exception, a small degree of an electrical current, kind of like a TENS unit. And they're applied in different places on the head or the neck or even the arm um, to uh, interrupt the, the messages that are coming from the nerves feeding into the brain or feeding up through the spinal cord into the brain. And there are, are several on the market one is called the Cephaly device. That was one of the first ones that was marketed. It is um, attached with an electrode onto the forehead. It looks kind of like uh, Wonder Woman. And it stimulates the trigeminal nerve uh, in the forehead. There is another one that's called GammaCore. And GammaCore is, uh, it looks like a, a little rectangular, um, slim device that has like two heads on it. And it's held up in the neck and it targets the vagus nerve, which is a big nerve that goes through the neck. Um, It uh, coordinates a lot of different functions in the body, actually projects down to the stomach. We were talking earlier about um, abdominal migraine. And so the the person just applies this thing, turns it on, ramps up the um, stimulation, and it stimulates the vagus nerve. And this is actually FDA cleared for not only migraine, but cluster headache. The uh, one of the newer ones is called Nerivio, and it actually attaches to the arm, which I thought was a little ingenious. And um, it sends information up the sensory nerves to the arm, up through the spinal cord, and eventually to the brain. But it interrupts the signals coming up and down the spinal cord that modulate pain. There was another device that is brand new. I'm honestly not sure if it's on the market yet, but it was recently FDA approved and it's called Relivion and it stimulates the occipital nerve in the back of the head, as well as those trigeminal nerves in the front of the head. And uh, the patient can adjust the device to stimulate, you know, wherever they want stimulated and at what uh, degree they want it stimulated. The last one, which was off the market for a while and hopefully will be coming back soon is called transcranial magnetic stimulation. And it, this is a little different because it uses magnetic stimulation rather than electrical stimulation. And uh, it's held up to the back of the head. And uh, when the when you uh, press the button, it delivers just a brief pulse of magnetic stimulation. Um, and it's thought to work by interrupting cortical spreading depression, which is, as we earlier discussed, uh, one of the first things that happens during migraine. There are some other devices that I've seen on the on the internet. Um, I think they work pretty similarly with uh, electrical stimulation. And are these devices that you uh, prescribe or recommend to your patients? 
I definitely prescribe them, and they are a nice adjunct treatment to um, other kinds of therapies. There are people who prefer not to take medication, uh, so that's a nice choice for them. It's also a good option during pregnancy, and uh, although they may not, they may be considered off-label. I think even for for children, they may be a good choice. Dr. Friedman, I'm wondering if we can talk now about preventing migraines, because for people who have very frequent migraines, there are now some wonderful options. Can you tell us about them? First of all, I just want to let people know that prevention is widely underutilized. One should think about having about using prevention if you're experiencing four or more headache days per month, um, which you know, is a lot when you think about it. Uh, being knocked out of commission for four days out of a month is significant. And especially if the acute medications don't work very well. So there are a lot of things we use for prevention. Many of them were designed for something else. Many are quite effective. The newer ones that came on the market in 2018, again, target CGRP. And those are Amovig, Amgality, and Ajovi, which are given by as injection under the skin once a month. Uh, in the case of Ajovi, it can be given at triple the dose once every three months. And then there is an intravenous formulation that's called Viapti, which is given once every three months intravenously. And the advantage of these is that they are they have good efficacy in clinical trials, and they also seem to have fewer side effects than some of the older drugs that we use because the treatment is targeted. Now, when you say older drugs, I assume you're referring to things like topiramate, anti-seizure drugs like gabapentin, and a lot of people complain about those. So this is a whole new approach for prevention. It is, and, and it's really exciting. And, um, you know, when it, it was similar to what we experienced when uh, Imitrex came out. Uh, I think many of us who treat a lot of patients with headaches were keeping lists of who we were going to prescribe Amovig to because that was the first one that came on the market. And uh, it it really did. And and so do the other drugs. They they really do give a lot of people their lives back after suffering from migraines for a long period of time. Now, that said, they don't work for everybody. And some people do have side effects. And I, I still do think that there's a role for the, quote, older drugs. Um, I have many patients who have taken the older drugs and I still prescribe them because in some cases it's helpful to have the off-target effects. Um, and many people do well on them. So, it, you know, migraine, the treatment of migraine is different for everybody. It's not one size fits all. It's not a formula. And, and it's all about talking to the patient and finding out, you know, what's going on in their lives and what the details of their attacks are and uh, whether they have any other medical problems and what other medicines they're taking. It's kind of a puzzle in a lot of ways to determine what the best treatment is. There's also Botox which we didn't mention, but Botox has been around for a long time. It's used for chronic migraine, meaning at least 15 headache days a month, at least half of those are migraine days, and is also a, a nice choice for many people. And the advantage is it, it doesn't interact with any other drugs. Dr. Friedman, you have talked about some of the older drugs, the ergotamines, the, you've talked about the triptans, you, you've talked about this new drug, Raval, you've talked about neuromodulation, you've talked about Botox, you've talked about 
you know, these CRP, CGRP antagonists and all of these new ones that we see advertised on television. I mean, it's a little overwhelming. How how can a, a clinician or even a patient, for that matter, make any sense about effectiveness, cost, uh, risk? I, you know, how, how do you how do you figure out what the best treatment is for any given individual? It is a little overwhelming. And as a headache specialist, I'm familiar with all of these drugs. But, you know, many primary care physicians uh, are not. And, you know, there's no reason they should. So I think like with most other conditions, the people who are usually on the front line in primary care, you know, they pick a few things that they're super comfortable with and that's what they use. And, And there's certainly nothing wrong with that. I would say that most of my patients probably get their information online uh, or in in various groups online. Now, how reliable that is, I'm not so sure, but it's certainly probably easier than reading the clinical trial papers. But it is, it's sometimes difficult and there's a lot of trial and error. You know, even still, we may try something and find that it works great. And we may try something because we think it's the best choice um, or the patient thinks it's the best choice and it doesn't work or they don't tolerate it and we have to move on. So, you know, my core philosophy is that the treatment shouldn't be worse than the underlying problem. And we're not here to torture people with side effects and we, we're here to make them better. And we usually do. Um, but it, it can take a while. And even with prevention, you know, it, it can take two to six months to find out if the preventive medication is actually working. So be patient. Dr. Friedman, it, it seems like there has been a revolution in the treatment of migraine headaches over the last several years. How, how does it seem at your end as a clinician? I totally agree with you. There was this era back in the, the 1990s and the early 2000s with the triptans, uh, and, you know, over that span of time, about eight different drugs were launched for the acute treatment of migraine, uh, a little bit of action for prevention. For example, topiramate was FDA approved uh, for the treatment of migraine during that time. But then there was this huge lull in the action for about 10 years. And now things are just so exciting and so many new things are coming out. Some of them, like the CGRP, based on research that was done over 20 years ago. So it it truly is sort of a bench to bedside story of of drug development. And I think that's the way things are going to be in in the future, where it's the research that really um, drives what comes to market, as opposed to serendipity, which is how things used to come to market, right? Dr. Friedman, our listeners frequently like to know what they can do for themselves. So are there lifestyle alterations that can be helpful in preventing migraine? That's a great question. Lifestyle changes are and modifications are so important. And I don't need I don't mean to to sort of blame the victim here. Uh, it's not like people are doing things wrong intentionally to cause their migraines, but sometimes people can identify factors that trigger them. And the most common ones are lack of sleep or a change in sleep pattern. It's really important to get a good night's sleep and keep the same sleep hours every day. Exposure to certain odors can trigger migraines, and sometimes that's out of our control. 
as well as stress. Some people get more migraines when they're stressed out. Uh, other people get more migraines when they're af- after the stress is over, like after the radio interview, <laughs> after giving the big presentation. And again, a lot of the stress, stress is part of our lives. So we can't control the stress a lot of times, but we control how we react to it. So cognitive behavioral therapy is often helpful in that regard. Exercise is a good thing. Watching one's diet and one's weight is a good thing. We know that being overweight is a risk factor for chronic migraine. So that is a modifiable risk factor. Controlling blood pressure uh, is also a, a helpful thing. It's kind of a myth that high blood pressure gives you headaches. It's usually uh, just uh, a, what we call a, a coexisting condition. Um, but, you know, just trying to to eat healthy and exercise and keep a good sleep schedule kind of goes a long way to trying to control migraines. We've heard some people react to the weather. Is that possible? Weather is cited worldwide as being a migraine trigger. Although a lot of studies looking at weather using diaries and using uh, data from the Meteorological Association don't find any correlation. But many people will say that either heat or uh, a storm coming in or a change in the barometric pressure will will trigger their migraine. Living in a a place that has changes in weather, it seems like every five minutes uh, in Dallas, Texas, you know, it kind of makes me wonder why people are having migraine all the time. But I, I think that weather can be uh, a trigger for some people, as can altitude, going to high altitude. Our listeners like not just lifestyle recommendations, but but sometimes what I call dietary supplements. So th- they've heard that magnesium can sometimes be helpful. Others talk about melatonin or riboflavin even something called coenzyme Q10 or vitamin D. Do you have any thoughts? I I, I suspect there aren't the randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled trials that there are with the prescription drugs we've been talking about. But what about magnesium, melatonin, uh, B vitamins, CoQ, vitamin D? There actually are some randomized clinical trials for um, some of the nutraceuticals. Uh, And the ones that you mentioned have all been studied and show benefit in migraine. So any of those could be an option. The magnesium preparation that was studied was um, magnesium oxide. Some people have trouble tolerating magnesium oxide because it can cause diarrhea and like stomach cramps. Um, So in that case, another formulation of magnesium could be used. There was another nutraceutical called Petadolex, which is Petasites, which is butterbur. It comes from a plant. And it was it used to be one of our highest recommended treatments, but it kind of fell off the wagon when people who were taking other formulations of butterbur uh, had pretty severe liver problems. So it uh, the people who make Petadolex actually have made sure that their product is safe. Um, and um, it, there are other people who make a similar product, and you just have to do your research and make sure that it's safe. Um, there are compounds that can be in it that are called, I have to, we'd have to look it up to be right, <laughs> pyrazolamines or something. Yeah, hang on. Pyr- pyrazolidines, I think. Pyrazolidines, hang on. No, that, uh, anyway, you have to be fine. careful when you buy it. 
Dr. Friedman, when you have a patient who you suspect will benefit from one of these new drugs, whether it's Nurtec or Ubrelvi or Emgality or Amavig, do you have to arm wrestle the insurance companies to get them access to these medications? Because I suspect these are pretty expensive drugs. They are expensive drugs. When when new drugs launch, often the pharmaceutical companies will arrange with various insurers, commercial insurers, to uh, pay a portion of the cost so that it, the patient doesn't have to pay all of that. People who are on government insurance, Medicare, Medicaid, TRICARE, they don't have that option. Um, so they have to wait until it goes on the formulary for their provider. But yes, there is definitely arm wrestling uh, involved, and particularly when patients are also using Botox. Fortunately, many of the insurance companies have loosened their restrictions about concurrent use of Botox and these newer products. Um, but for a while, it was a real struggle. And for many people, it continues to be a struggle, uh, not only for them fighting with their insurance company, but for us fighting with their insurance company. It uses a lot of resources in the office. Um, we have to hire people to do this, which drives off the cost of healthcare. Uh, so in a lot of ways, it's kind of counterproductive when you look at the big picture. Dr. Friedman, our listeners appreciate uh, learning if our guests have conflicts of interest. So please tell us about yours. So I have served as a consultant and on advisory boards for Allergan, AbbVie, Biohaven Pharmaceuticals, Electricor, Eli Lilly, Impel, Lundbeck, Teva, Zosano, and I received uh, grant support because I was part of the clinical trials um, from AbbVie, Allergan, uh, Eli Lilly, and Zosano. Thank you. And now, as our final question, are there promising new treatments that you are excited about? I think the next exciting class of treatments that will be introduced for migraine uh, that are, and they are currently in clinical trials are those that target uh, a different molecule. It's kind of similar to CGRP, but it's called PACAP, pituitary adenylate cyclase activating polypeptide, which is kind of a mouthful. But PACAP works in the body similarly to CGRP and people are developing, uh, companies are developing monoclonal antibodies to PACAP as we speak. That there are also some new delivery systems for medications that are in development, such as transdermal and uh, using little micro needles to get the drug under the skin. Um, because as we know, many people with migraine have pretty severe nausea and vomiting and oral medications don't work well for them. So the good news is that a lot of of companies are interested in migraine. Um, it's uh, it's on the radar screen, and I think that we'll just see more good things to come. Dr. Deborah Friedman, thank you very much for talking with us on the People's Pharmacy today. You are most welcome. You've been listening to Dr. Deborah Friedman. She's a professor in the Department of Neurology and the Department of Ophthalmology at the University of Texas Southwestern Medical Center. As a neuro-ophthalmologist and headache medicine specialist, Dr. Friedman is the founding director of UT Southwestern's Headache and Facial Pain Program, 
and serves as director of the UTSW's Disorders of Intracranial Pressure Program. We spoke earlier with Paula Dumas, patient advocate, founder of MigraineAgain.com, and producer of the Migraine World Summit. That's online at MigraineWorldSummit.com. Each day for a week, the producers post four interviews about migraine that can be viewed free for 24 hours after posting. There's a link to it from our website. Lynn Siegel produced today's show, Al Wadarski engineered, Dave Graydon edits our interviews, B.J. Lederman composed our theme music. This show is a co-production of North Carolina Public Radio, WUNC, with The People's Pharmacy. The People's Pharmacy is brought to you in part by Cocovia, the maker of high-potency cocoflavanol supplements that support cognitive and cardiovascular health. More information at Cocovia. VIA.com. Today's show is number 1294. You can find it online at peoplespharmacy.com. You could subscribe to our podcast through your favorite podcast provider. We post the show on our website on Monday morning. This week's podcast has some additional information that wouldn't fit in the broadcast, including lifestyle advice for lowering your risk of migraine. At peoplespharmacy.com, you can sign up for our free online newsletter to get the latest news about COVID-19 and other important health stories. By subscribing to our newsletter, you'll also have regular access to our weekly podcast and find out ahead of time which topics we'll be covering. In Durham, North Carolina, I'm Joe Graydon. And I'm Terry Graydon. Thank you for listening. Please join us again next week. Thank you for listening to the People's Pharmacy Podcast. It's an honor and a pleasure to bring you our award-winning program week in and week out. But producing and distributing this show as a free podcast takes time and costs money. If you like what we do and you'd like to help us continue to produce high-quality, independent healthcare journalism, please consider chipping in. All you have to do is go to peoplespharmacy.com slash donate. Whether it's just one time or a monthly donation, you can be part of the team that makes this show possible. Thank you for your continued loyalty and support. We couldn't make our show without you.